Carissa Carbon. Oh, wow. That I really, I really, really enjoyed uh, talking with Carissa. She's just, she's got an energy that's just uh, completely contagious. She's a leadership coach, but she's, she's much more than that. Fascinating background, uh, where she's come from uh, and where she, where she is now. Her, her angle, her, her attitude on leadership is, is quite unique. Um, what's the most destructive word in our language? let you think about that for a moment the most destructive word she has an answer and uh, she has a good reason to back it up I wonder I wonder if it's gonna be the same as yours but really great energy her social media is fantastic her content is fantastic um, really enjoy my time speaking with her we had a great time talking afterwards as, as well we should have recorded a lot of that there was a lot of great content but uh, Chris the carbon you <clears throat> Uh, take that again. Krista Carbon, you're really, really going to enjoy this conversation with her. I, I sure did. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Your time. Hello, Carissa Carbon. What a great pleasure. Thanks for doing this. What's the most... I know the answer. I know your answer, but I just I want to elaborate on it. But what's the most destructive word? Oh my gosh! I feel like I'm being set up here. Oh, the most destructive word. Um, yes, no, you're not being set up. Oh gosh, uh, there are so many. Um, I don't know. I feel like I, yeah. What what answer are you looking for? Let me ask you that, and we can elaborate from there. I know what your answer is based on your talks and what you do. And I want to, I want the people to, I want the listeners to hear it. And I want to talk about it. The word, the conjunction or. Mm, yes. Yes. I do think or is a very destructive word. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. I'm so glad you picked up on that. I do think that is one of the most limiting words in the English language. And why is that? I think it closes, closes us off to possibilities. I think that oftentimes we are conditioned and we are wired to boil things down to this or that, right? Kind of these mm. binary choices. And I think that 
if we adopt a yes and, or we live in the land of and, uh, however we want to phrase it, I think it opens us up to so many options and new possibilities that maybe we couldn't have envisioned previously. So is it really your kind of way of filling in the uh, gray, gray versus black and white? 100%. Yes, absolutely. I love to live in the gray. I think very few things in this world are black and white. And I think that it's easier for us to wrap our minds around things. It's easier for us to think in terms of a binary choice. And it feels maybe in the moment like it's easier to make that easy binary choice. But when we actually choose to lean into complexity and nuance, so much more is possible for us. Hmm. Now, as a leadership coach, do you is your methodology more art or science? Because when I hear people talk about gray, I think more art than science. It's both and <laughs> perfect example. <laughs> <laughs> and where does it begin and cut off? Very interesting. So I have studied a lot of brain chemistry, right? Neuroscience learning how our brains actually work, how we have evolved to function. And I've studied a lot about how our current environment is often not set up to help us thrive and to help us hmm. be at our best. And so there's a lot of science and rigor and academia behind my coaching methodology and the work that I do with clients. And I think where the art part comes in is that every single human being is completely unique and magic. And so how we apply neuroscience or rigor to a unique individual human being is totally customized and totally artistic. Hmm. And can you elaborate on what you said in the beginning there where you said our environment isn't necessarily set up to make us more to, to make us excel, to make us, to make us better. I don't know if I chose those words correctly. Yeah, absolutely. I, so here's a perfect example. We think about how we are wired. Our brains are wired to seek out sugar as much as we can. Mm. Right. Cause when we think about evolving through the Savannah, we were rewarded with dopamine, right. In order to go find that sugar, because it was a very, energy dense source of food and energy, right? And what we needed was food was scarce. So we needed the the bang for your buck. So we were very heavily rewarded for seeking out and finding sources of sugar. And what we know today, where most people, especially in developed nations, have access to abundant sources of sugar, especially processed foods, and so if we simply give in to our default natural evolutionary behavior, we're going to consume a lot of that sugar. And so that's where I say our environment is not set up to help us thrive because now, given the environment we're in, we, through ingenuity, through innovation, we've been able to overcome a lot of obstacles that we had to face thousands of years ago. And now we don't have those obstacles. And now the obstacle is actually learning to check in and mm. get out of autopilot and say, okay, by default, I want to consume as much sugar as possible, but that's actually not good for me. So I need to find ways to balance my intake mm. and to exercise instead of sitting at a computer all day, all of those things. So we have created a world that is designed for our wants, not necessarily our needs. 
Very, very interesting. I notice some days I am so productive, I can't slow down. I can't believe it. I'm so productive. And there are other days where I just can't get off the couch. I just, I don't know. You know, some people will tell me it's if it's mercury in retrograde or somebody, you know, <laughs> there'll be all these kinds of, sure. you know, interplanetary or whatever reasons. And uh, I don't know how to to differentiate the two. I mean, tell me about what you think about that, please. Yeah, I think what's so interesting is we're not meant to be productive all of the time. You know, mm. as a species, we are wired, interestingly, to be as lazy as possible, going back to this idea of finding our energy sources. When food wasn't abundant, you know, we we're persistence hunting, we're gathering nuts, berries, whatever we can find. We were rewarded for not expending energy unless we really had to, right? We spent a lot of time and energy searching for food, nutrients, mating to procreate, to continue the species. You know, we were really consumed with survival. And so, in those moments where we didn't have to be productive or seeking out food, we were rewarded for staying comfortable, being mm. lazy, not expending a lot of energy. And so, I think that for me, again, going back to our environment and the construct, we're not really meant to be at the same temperature all of the time. If you think about how we set our, our thermostats in our homes and we're not really meant to constantly be on the go and be productive. And I think that having a, a two day weekend, especially these days, you know, most people's weekends are not meant for rest and recovery, right? We're mm. shuttling children to games and sports and we have gatherings with friends. We're not really taking a lot of time to recharge. So I think especially as we've been living through this pandemic, we're kind of coming to terms with the fact that, gosh, we're exhausted and we really need to rest. Very, very interesting. You have a, a fascinating past where you're a single child, you lived with your mother, a single, single parent, and you were a bit kind of nomadic. You weren't mm -hmm. you know, military. You moved around and you, you had some difficulty, of course, with your divorce a while ago and you spent time at Cisco. I mean, all of these things really kind of funneled you, it, it would seem, please elaborate, and, yeah. and brought you to a point where you can really talk about leadership. I mean, at what age do you think you were introduced to it and you kind of gripped onto it? You know, I would say for me, leadership became a really big part of my life when I was in grad school for the first time. Uh, I'm finishing mm -hmm. grad school for the second time now, but uh, in grad school for the first time about 10 years ago, where I started to see the tremendous impact that leaders have on the people in their care is how I phrase it. The people who report to them. I've had some really unfortunately, terrible leaders who have taught mm. me some really great lessons. And I've had some really amazing leaders. And so I would say, for me, it wasn't a light bulb moment of 10 years ago, I thought, okay, this is it. This is my passion. This is mm. my calling. This is the path that I'm on. It was more of a, a spark of curiosity, if you will, where I said, huh, this is really interesting. I'm going to learn a little bit more. And so I noticed that over time, especially while I was an engineer, uh, when I had free time and my mind was wandering, I wasn't really staying awake at night thinking about engineering problems. I was thinking mm. about people and leadership. And again, I think especially in our hierarchical structures that we work in, most of us work in today, leaders have tremendous positional power. And as I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, people don't leave companies, they leave 
managers or leaders, right? And so I think for me, that's what really started me down the path of more just following curiosity. I started absorbing a lot of books, reading, doing Mm. self-studying. And as I've grown in my career, I've just become so passionate because I really care about human beings. And I've seen so often that what I call managers, as opposed to true leaders, we a lot of managers are doing the best that they can, right? I, I tend to believe and I choose to believe that everyone's doing the best that they can. So mm. even if a manager maybe fails to show up fully for one of their direct reports, I don't judge that manager. I just think it's really about the tools. And oftentimes uh, people get into these positions of formal leadership without preparation, without mm. true passion or desire. And it's because of what we know is the Peter principle, They were really, really good at their previous job. So they got promoted into leadership, but then they're not trained. They're not developed. They're not really given the tools to excel in a role that now requires a lot of different skills. Yeah. Well said. You've got such a great energy, Krista, and it's, it's, it's contagious. When I talk to you on on your social media, let's talk about that. uh, The difference between leadership and management, because I've had, I've had managers who thought they were leaders and I've had leaders, you know, who think they're managers. Just, just what, what's the basic difference? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll preface it by saying, I don't think we need leaders or managers going back to our initial uh, Mm. conversation. I think we need leaders and managers. And I think Mm. the best ones can do both. Hmm. So for me, the way I differentiate the two is I heard this quote recently from a friend and I really loved it. When you know how to get there, you manage. When you don't, you lead. And so I think that when it comes to especially the work environment today, many people try to manage, which inherently includes a lot more control, uh, a lot more sort of guidance, more explicit. Okay, here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to do it. Here's when we need to do it by. And so it's much more like a project manager. And I think that we can manage tasks but we get into trouble when we try to manage people. Hmm. Most people don't want to be managed. They want to be led. And so when I think about a, a truly effective leader, I think of someone who can set the, the tone and the vision for a team, let's say, or an organization or a company, whatever scale we're thinking about. But they're not trying to control the path of every step along the way. It's like, hey, here's where we're going. Here's the outcome we're driving towards. And then there's a recognition that, Sure, I have a lot of experience. I have diverse experience. I have my own upbringing that has shaped how I think about things. But you know what, Joe, you have amazing experience as well. And I want to know more about your perspective. So I think leadership is really about guiding, about removing obstacles, and really about investing in people as the human beings that they are, not simply thinking about them as workers. Yeah, very, very well said. And it's, it's very much a quantifiable role being a manageable a manager, right? Yeah. You have these kinds of tasks, these kinds of goals, these kinds of deadlines, these milestones, whereas leadership is more big picture overall direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where it can be so hard in a world where we try to quantify everything, right? right? Mm. We're thinking in the fiscal quarter is our our longest timeline that we think about. And we can get into a lot of trouble trying to boil everything down to these easily quantifiable metrics. And so I think that's where 
a little bit of that uh, living in the gray can come in. Mm. Yes, of course we have businesses to run. Of course we have to have metrics. We have to, uh, excuse me, we have to hit milestones, right? But when it comes to leading, it can be much more ambiguous. It is that art form. It is investing in human beings and every single person is unique. So I think when it comes to being a true leader, this is where I help my clients. Uh, What I say is become the true leader of our own lives. Because I think so often the conditioning, the, our thought patterns, unresolved trauma from our past is actually ruling how we show up, how we respond to situations. So I help clients go internally first before we think about hmm. how to lead organizations more effectively. And we go internally and we say, okay, what thoughts, what patterns are ruling your life? How attached are you to your beliefs, to your identity? Because that really impacts how we show up as leaders. Would it be fair to say that management is more science and leadership is more art? Yes, and. <laughs> mm. I think I think it's both, right? I think that's the beauty of it is there are times and contexts and situations where we need art and science and management and we need art and science and leadership. So hmm. I really think it's about leaning into that nuance and leaning into how do I approach a situation for what it is, as opposed to simply trying to apply a formula, right? A formula or a framework can be a great jumping off point, Hmm. but it can often become handcuffs if we stick to it too strictly. So do the people around you and your students, do they generally know to kind of avoid like a scenario you're out to dinner with your husband and he says, you know, would you like the wine or the scotch? And you say, I'll have both. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, no, luckily I'm I'm better at making those types of decisions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously we can't, we can't always live in and, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. But when it comes to, let's say topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right. Very hot topics of today. Mm. I think that's where we get ourselves into trouble by it's this or that. Mm. Why can't it be both, right? When Mm. we think, okay, it's this group, it's their turn to be on top of the hierarchy or it's their turn to have a chance, a a seat at the table. I say, let's build a new table. Let's invite everybody to the table because everybody's voice is valuable and deserves and needs to be heard, quite frankly. Absolutely. You mentioned kind of what's, what the temperature is now. Let's talk about the great resignation and, yeah. you know, and tell me you have some direct thoughts on that and how, you know, how you can create loyalty and attrition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As, as I choose to call it, as I'm sure you're aware of this, but uh, rather than the great resignation, I choose to call it the great awakening mm. because I think this is a really beautiful time where rather than simply thinking, I just have to get the better job. I have to get the bigger house. I have to do what I'm supposed to do, quote unquote, right? The way we've been conditioned to think there's this one size fits all approach to success, happiness, fulfillment. I think the pandemic has really created space for a lot of people. Unfortunately, not all people, but a lot Mm -hmm. of people to sort of question, wait a second, why am I working 80 hours a week? Why why am I okay with missing my children's childhood and what is really important to me in my life, not just what's expected of me? So I think I choose to call it the great awakening because I think it's a really beautiful inflection point in history. 
Yeah, and we see this dramatic shift in you know in in jobs in the economy where people are. Uh, is their goal happiness? Would you say? You know, it's so funny. Uh, I think that is the goal, but I don't necessarily think it should be. <laughs> mm. I think uh, you know, oftentimes. Um, we tend to conflate pleasure and happiness. We think if I'm having a pleasurable experience, that means I'm happy. And I think that mm. happiness, at least for me, when I think of a more sustainable avenue for happiness is really about fulfillment and contribution and impact. And so mm. I think that oftentimes we think, okay, I'm going to, I might job hop because I'm not happy in this position. So I'm going to turn into uh, getting a raise if I go to a different company and that's going to make me happier. But a lot of studies show us beyond a certain dollar threshold, of course, we all need money to survive. And especially in the society we live in, we can't truly self-actualize, if you will, if we're fighting for our bare physical survival. But beyond a certain dollar amount, more money does not increase our happiness or fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that's where oftentimes we unfortunately without that introspection, without being willing to go inward, we don't actually know what's going to make us happy. So we kind of bounce from different experience, different opportunities. We're striving for something outside of us that we think is going to fulfill us internally when really what we have inside of us is what we need. And we have all of the tools if we're willing and we have the courage to go inward, we can figure out what will make us happy. And it's not necessarily going to be a bigger house or a bigger paycheck. Hmm. Does is is humbleness, humility one of the qualities of good leadership? Because perhaps they need to know, know that they need leadership help therefore your services. Is is that a good sign because I I've known some leaders not all that you know I'm doing just fine as a leader I don't need help. You know how do you bridge that gap? That's a great question. Um, I don't. <laughs> mm. uh, you know, I think when it comes to coaching, when it comes to therapy, when it comes to helping anybody, we cannot help people who aren't willing or able to be helped, right? Mm. We've seen it in extreme cases. Let's say our family, we have someone in the family who's an addict and we want nothing more than to help them. But until someone is ready and willing and able to raise their hand and say, you know what? I've hit my limit. I need help. We can shower upon them advice, books, you know, opportunities. It's not, none of it's going to land until that person is willing to open up and say, I need some help here. And so when it comes to, let's say leadership coaching in particular, I do think humility is really important. And I, I think it's also care. We have to be careful with what we mean by humility, because I think some people interpret humility as, I can't take a compliment, right? I, I, mm. I'm, I'm selfless. I'm self-sacrificing. And I think that is sort of a detrimental way to think of humility. Whereas I think of it, when I think of it in my own life, I am very confident when it comes to certain skills, certain strengths, certain attributes that I have. I own those. Yeah, hmm. I do those things really well. And at the same time, I'm willing to also say, you know, there are a lot of things I don't do well and I need help with those things. So I think for me, it's really about being able to create a more realistic assessment of your strengths and your opportunities for growth. Hmm. Do you, is there a difference? 
so I'm a student of jujitsu, very new at it. But one of the the biggest, the biggest kind of, the biggest, I guess I'll say just the biggest shock is that you know there's a room full of men in there. I mean the the you know the testosterone is dripping everywhere, and it's just <laughs> there's just no ego. The instructor mm-hmm. who's this black belt, it was you know ex Navy SEAL. There's no ego in this room at all. If there's mm-hmm. ego in, there, if I see any of it, you're out. You know, and it's just there's humility there, and it's just it's so nice. And as a new student, it's welcoming, of course. But do, is that is that common in leadership? Ego, yes, very yeah. common. <laughs> mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, what's so interesting though is what I found and. There are always exceptions to the rule. So I'm not saying this is a blanket statement that applies to everyone. But in my experience, what I've seen is the people who tend to show up with the most amount of ego are usually the most insecure. Mm. And it's usually sort of a band-aid of trying to cover up the weaknesses, trying to cover up the fact that maybe they're stretched beyond their comfort zone or their abilities. And Oftentimes we think of leaders as these heroes, right? These infallible, you know, you're supposed to have all the answers. You're supposed to Mm. know exactly what you're doing. And what we know is that so many of us uh, suffer from imposter syndrome at different times in our career. And so when we think about, oh gosh, maybe I'm not equipped. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I don't have the right expertise. Maybe I got in over my head. A lot of leaders, unfortunately, feel that they have to put on the brave face They have to show up in a way that is very sort of egocentric. And because it's not coming from that place of authentic confidence or humility, it can rub people the wrong way because it's, we're very good at picking up on, you know, people being genuine or not genuine. Mm. So if someone's very egotistical, very controlling, very micromanager, they're not willing to entertain new ideas or, you know, brainstorm with the team. It ends up being very disempowering for the members of the team who say, wait a second, I have a voice too. I have something I want to add. And so I think it's really about creating a reciprocal relationship and a Mm. safe space where we can take off these masks. We can let our ego take the day off, right? It's a big task to kind of (laughs) disarm somebody with a large ego like that. And uh, I've had to do it just in business and you know in friendship it's it's difficult task uh, you just have to be careful and be gentle yeah absolutely i my my approach is loving kindness right mm. i try to show up and i try to create trust and show that i'm an ally not an adversary right mm. and i typically i look for ways to take the first step in stepping into vulnerability and creating that safe space, right? So I might offer up a time when I felt out of my depth or I felt that I was over my head and, or a time that I failed and I will open with that and I will share it sort of like a game of ping pong, right? You kind of serve the ball across the net and you see, are they going to return it or are they not? And at some point, you know, I'm willing to try and try. But then at some point, like I said, we can't help people who don't want to be helped. So at a certain point, if the volley, if they're not returning that serve, we sometimes just need to move on for our own well-being and in order to maintain our own boundaries and meet our own needs. What is the difference between mentoring, therapy, and coaching? Mm, Beautiful question. I get this question a lot. Mm. So mentoring, the way I view it, and 
the way I've seen it play out is typically we find a mentor who has had a career path or has accomplished something that we aspire to emulate. So we go to them and we say, how did you do it? And so mentorship, most mentors tend to say, well, here's what I did. Here's what worked for me. Why don't you try this? And I'm going to, you know, give you feedback, guide you along the way. But it's essentially kind of following the breadcrumbs that were laid before you. Hmm. Now, I think of coaching very differently because coaching is not necessarily about telling people what to do. I think coaching should not be about telling people what to do because it's really about asking the right questions to help people come up with their own answers. So as a mentor, I might say, I think you should go try this. You should talk to this person. You should try to get into this career field, get this type of experience because we're trying to guide someone on a path that we think is known. Whereas as a coach, you know, if someone says, I want to become a leader, okay, well, tell me why, what motivates you? What are you interested in leadership for? Instead of immediately jumping to solution or taking action, we create space to ask those questions and to explore. And so I think that therapy is, this is where I also think it should be coaching and therapy, because a lot of people Mm. say coaching or therapy, and I think it's both. Therapy is really, really great for helping us get stuck from the past, you know, to think about unresolved trauma, whether we're talking about little T trauma that I think everybody experiences or big T trauma that unfortunately a lot of us have experienced, it can be a way to explore, okay, what exactly happened, right? If we get stuck in the past, let's shine a light on it. Let's get curious. Let's work through that and heal from that past trauma. And that, and then I think coaching is and can be much more action oriented to say, okay, now that you've gotten unstuck from that past, how do we turn that into momentum to the future? Somebody once described to me as coaching is looking forward. Therapy looks back. Yes. And, yes, and. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the coaching that I do, and I, I think it really depends. This is where I think if you're interested in coaching, it's really, really, really important to vet your coach, right? I think there are a lot of people out there. It's a fairly unregulated field. And so there are a lot of people who say, I went through a hard time or I had a particular career experience. So now I'm going to be a coach for that. So it's really important because I think the best coaches also know their limits. So as a coach, I might dive into the past with some of my clients because they're they're repeating certain patterns, right? So we need to go into the past to figure out what happened, what story was created as a result of some childhood experience potentially. Hmm. But I'm very careful about saying, okay, we're getting into territory that I cannot guide you through. This is where you need therapy or a counselor or some other additional help. I think that coaches, unfortunately, can sort of get their ego in the way sometimes. Mm. And I'm sure I'm guilty of this at times too. I am certainly not perfect by any means, but it's, it's sort of, (laughs) it's sort of easy to say I can help anybody with anything. And the human psyche can be very fragile and can be very delicate, very complex. So I think it's, it's very important that we acknowledge our limits and that we don't try to wade through something with someone that we're not equipped to support them with. 
who or what, who is the best candidate for your leadership coaching? Hmm. The best for my specific style, because I tend to do a lot more sort of internal work and, you know, breaking old patterns uh, as opposed to just the tactical, okay, you want the promotion. Here's, here's the checkbox that you need. For me, my ideal clients are those who let's say have started seeing a therapist or they're reading books like Brene Brown, you know, they're really diving into shame, vulnerability. They're getting curious about why do I show up the way that I do? Or, okay, I got into this position because I thought it was what was expected or what I was supposed to, but now I'm miserable. Something's got to give. So people who are curious, right, who are willing to leave that ego at the door, willing to say, I don't have the answers. I don't know where to go from here. I need some help. And people who are enthusiastic, right? Excited about the future and the possibilities that could come with it, as opposed to people who, um, sorry, Eeyore, uh, you know, fictional character I can pick on a little bit, you know, that person who's sort of the, the victim or the Debbie Downer, if you will, someone who refuses to take responsibility for their life, they're not necessarily going to have the best results in coaching because, as a coach, I can hold space. I can ask questions. I can mm. challenge your perspective, but I can't do the work for you. Excellent references there. Um, Silent Live and uh, Disney. Um, <laughs> is it always generally your candidates, the people you work with are in the business field? Typically, yes. I tend to work uh, mostly with corporate leaders, either, mm. let's say, first-line managers up to executives, the C-suite. Um, I do have clients who are earlier in their career, but I tend to focus more on uh, people who have some leadership experience so that we can unpack and say, what has worked? What hasn't? Where do you want to go from here? Um, but I'm not necessarily closed off to, if people want to come work with me, I, I love to help people. I love to serve mm. and I want to have a positive impact as broadly as possible. But for now I tend to focus more on corporate and business leadership. Yeah. Your, your, your positivity and your willingness to help is, uh, is, is evident. So on the podcast, we talk a lot about discipline. I lost a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. You mentioned at one point how, uh, you know, people have to, you can hold space for them. They kind of have, they have to come to this you mentioned the you know drug abuse was your exact example where they have to kind of come to this come to Jesus moment. Mine was when my doctor said you're not going to see your daughter graduate, which by the way is in two weeks. Uh, interesting. Um, wow! But congrats. Yeah, yeah, college. I and knock really, on wood. <laughs> knock on wood. Good point. <laughs> so I wonder how discipline plays a role in your life. Do you consider your yeah. Do you consider yourself disciplined now? Had you as a child? When? When? How does that work in your life, Chris? Discipline. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a, a very interesting relationship with discipline. And what I'd say is I, I identify as a fairly disciplined person. And what has shifted in my life over time is the motivation behind the discipline. So earlier as a young adult, let's say when I was busy checking those boxes and looking for promotions and really striving, I was still very disciplined, but it was what I felt externally imposed discipline. Whereas now I feel that my discipline springs from within because now I'm choosing the things that I'm disciplined about. And so for me, it's almost a, 
an unending supply of discipline and enthusiasm, not totally unending. Uh, I do have my days, right? Um, but when I think about earlier on in my career and earlier in life, it was harder for me to maintain the discipline because I felt that I was chasing somebody else's dreams or somebody else's goals of what mm. I was supposed to do or what was expected of me. Whereas now it's, it all comes from within. Very interesting. The term externally imposed discipline, not sure if I heard it before, but I can see what you're referring to. And was that by family members, by friends, by colleagues, by business? I think a little of everything, right? Yes, mm. and <laughs> the theme for today. Um, I think a lot of it was self-imposed based on what I thought it meant to be successful in the world. So as a perfect example, uh, you talked about, you know, weight loss. I had a very negative body image for most of my life because I didn't have what I thought was the ideal body type, right? I wasn't incredibly skinny and I didn't have, you know, giant breasts with a tiny waist or whatever those ideals were that we, we hold people to. And so when I would exercise and I would deprive myself of certain foods that I enjoyed, it was harder for me to maintain that discipline or willpower because I was coming from a place of, I'm not good enough. I have to do this. I need to do this in order to fit in, in order to belong in the world. Whereas now I have an incredibly healthy body image. I love my body and it's a lot easier to maintain the body that feels good and natural for me because I'm, I'm listening to what my body needs, not what I'm told it's supposed to look like. Hmm. So that was actually kind of societal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we have a lot of societal. Uh, if we if we zoom out and we look at the system in which we live, there is so much conditioning, so much expectation, so much that's put on us that oftentimes we're not even conscious of. Hmm. Is there additional pressure or points at being a woman and being a leadership coach? Can you say more about that? Is it equal? Is it an equal in leadership coaching? Is it an equal opportunity? Are there just as many men as there are women? As coaches or yeah. leaders? As coaches. You know, interestingly, um, a lot of the coaching field tends to be a lot of women, um, hmm. but then most of the leaders are still men. <laughs> Interesting. And why do you think that is? I have a lot of reasons, but I think a lot of it is, um, again, societal conditioning and expectation, right? I think that coaching is very much a role in service. Again, if we're kind of doing it for the right reasons and we're here to show up for people. And I think that some may argue that women tend to be more nurturing, more, you know, service oriented, community oriented by nature. And I would also argue though, that masculine and feminine expectations in our society, we really celebrate and pride men on doing things for themselves, right? Of going after it, being the leader, having the accomplishments, taking action and doing. And I think we don't necessarily encourage men to lean into their feminine side, the emotional side and get in touch with that. So I think some of it might be nature and some of it might be nurture. Hmm. Very interesting. 
very interesting the um, how that's shaking out. I wonder if it's moving. Uh, uh, there must be studies being going on. I wonder whether mm-hmm. that's shifting or not. Um, you know, I have daughters, and so I've always, you know, uh, kind of had a slanted kind of attitude towards these things. Um, what motivates you, Carissa Cannon? What, what motivates you? Carver. What motivates me? Um, yeah. Love. Love motivates me. Hmm. Um, impact, service, connection. I'm here to learn as much as I can about the world and about myself. And I, I want to go to my inevitable end, right? We all, we all know how this ends. Uh, I want to go feeling and knowing that I made the most of my life. You know, we, we, Bronnie Ware, uh, she is a hospice nurse and studies, you know, the regrets of the dying, if you will. And the number one regret of the dying is I wish I had lived a life more, more authentic to myself instead of what others expected of me. Mm. And so I think that quote really comes in when I think, when I feel pressure to show up in a certain way or to go after certain opportunities or to conform or put myself in a box to make other people comfortable, to, uh, put them at ease. I come back to that quote and I say, what would I regret more? Maybe offending someone, maybe losing a friendship, or would I regret not being my true self and not living all out? And so how do you, how do you, you know, to always be learning? I, I like to think I do that as well. It's one of the main reasons why I have this podcast. In fact, it's the number one reason. I, I like to <laughs> talk to smart people and I like to learn from them. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be a natural goal for many. Uh, how do you do that? How do you keep, how do you keep learning? I think a lot of it comes back to when we think of, let's say the traditional education system, especially in the U S we are not necessarily taught to be curious, to have Mm. that hunger for learning, right? We're taught, you you know, that might sound counterintuitive because we think we we go to school to learn, but we go to school and we learn how to memorize how to regurgitate, how to learn the things that you tell me I'm supposed to learn as opposed to fostering that natural creativity and curiosity. Because as we know, and there are a lot of studies, right, that that study children, children have a natural curiosity, a natural desire to learn, right? We're, Mm. as children, constantly learning and taking in new information because we're new to the world and everything is exciting and novel to us. But as we go through, especially the traditional education system, we're supposed to learn what we're expected to learn. And so I I believe that we all have a natural inclination. We all have a natural desire to learn and to grow. Hmm. But it's a question of the environment. Does it foster that? Does it support that? And are you encouraged to learn the things that you actually want to learn? Right? Because we tend to think, oh, no. my favorite example, I like to say underwater basket weaving, right? It's just, it sounds so fun. Uh, if we think if someone's really passionate about that, but then they're, they grow up in an environment where, no, that's a waste of time. That's not valuable. You need to go learn business. You need to go learn, you know, programming, whatever it is, whatever pressure is put on us. But I think if we can simply encourage people and we see the value and the beauty in everybody having their own unique interests and their own unique curiosity, I think everybody has some of that. It's just a question of whether or not it's been beaten out of them. 
You're an optimist. <laughs> Is it that obvious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. I am too. I am too, by yes. the way. Yeah. I mean, I can distinctly remember in school learning certain things and being very interested about some and not by others. And right. we are trained to pass tests, not necessarily mm -hmm. learn. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That's unfortunate. It's very very unfortunate. unfortunate. Well, and I mean, if you think about the way our education system is structured, it's very outdated, right? It's really designed to prepare people to work on a factory assembly line, mm. you know, a la the industrial revolution. So I think that's really sad because also now in the economy that we have, most people are knowledge workers, right? We have very few people who are doing manufacturing, who are on the assembly line. Now we're creating robots to do a lot of that sort of manual or rote uh, labor. And so as these knowledge workers, I have worked with a lot of new hires coming out of college and we say, okay, welcome to the working world. Now you get to be creative, you get to be innovative, mm. you get to bring new diverse perspectives to the table. <laughs> and I see sort of a blank stare a lot of times and that kind of deer in the headlights look of, wait a second, I, I, I wasn't taught how to be creative or how to be innovative. I was only taught to do what was expected of me or what I was instructed to do. And so I think when it comes to leadership, again, effective leaders recognize the history and the context and the environment that people are coming from. So holding people to a standard of, well, I'm creative or I'm innovative or I, I like reading. Why don't you like reading? Hmm. Everybody's different. And so it's really about meeting people where they are. How do you measure success, Carissa? Hmm. Oftentimes I don't. <laughs> mm. uh, I think I think for me it's it's much more in those intangibles, right? I think for me, success is a previous report coming to me a year later saying, you know, I just had a really tough conversation with my manager about a promotion. And I got my promotion because of the tools that you helped me build while I reported to you. Hmm. Um, I measure success in someone who comes to me and says, you know, I really suffered from imposter syndrome. I'm going to get emotional because no one really believed in me and you believed in me. And now I have the confidence to go after what I want and to go after my dreams. Um, yeah, I measure success in Good someone point. saying, I finally figured out what I want to do with my career and it's not what everyone expected of me, but I feel really, really excited about it. So those are some of the ways I measure success. Oh, that's, that's applaudable. Very, very cool. <laughs> do you, do you, do you celebrate wins? All the time. All the time. Yeah. How so? Big and small. You know, I mm. think I, I choose to view every single day as a gift. And I think so much of how we choose to approach life and approach the world really impacts how we feel about it, right? If we think, <clears throat> perfect example of a, a quick reframe, a win that I get to celebrate is paying my mortgage or paying my electric bill. We'll go with something mm. small, my electric bill. And a lot of times we think, oh, I have to pay my bills and that sucks. And I think, wow, how fortunate am I, how privileged am I that I am able to pay my bills, that I'm able to have electricity in my home that, you know, so I think those are the small wins that I choose to 
be grateful and celebrate every day when the sun shines. Wow. That's a win for me, especially living in Colorado where we've, uh, we have long winters and a lot of snow. Uh, so for me, it's wins big and small that I think deserve to be celebrated. And I think what's so interesting culturally, especially in the U S is we tend to wear our burdens like a badge of honor, mm. you know, Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. I, hate my job or my boss is a jerk or I have to do this. I have to take my kids to soccer practice or whatever it is. And we tend to live in, I have to, when truly every single thing that we do in our lives is a choice. We don't have to pay our bills. We may not like the consequence of Mm. not paying them, but we choose to pay. You know, we may not have all the energy to go out and find our dream job but we can still find ways to make the best of the situation that we're in and choose to see each day or each week as a gift and as an opportunity. Well said, Chris. Well said. Do you mediate or or mediate? Do you meditate or journal? Hmm. I do. I do both. Yes. I, I tend to journal uh, more than I meditate. Uh, For me, a lot of my thoughts can kind of spin in my head. So for me, journaling is a way to sort of pull those thoughts out of my head and Mm. see, kind of hold them at a distance, right? Because I think oftentimes when our thoughts are spinning in our head, it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that our thoughts are true and real and they are not. (laughs) And so creating a little bit of distance and a little bit of perspective, I'm able to say, okay, is that true? Not to say they're not valid, right? I think all of the thoughts that we have, the beliefs, the pain, they're all valid because we are having them, but they're not necessarily true and we can change them. Hmm. So I tend to journal a lot. I very frequently have had a strong journaling practice for probably 15 years. Um, And then meditation. I love meditating. I write a lot of meditations for my clients as well. I do guided meditations because I think that I've had incredibly transformative experiences through meditation. Uh, I tend to prefer guided meditations. Uh, Sometimes I do silent meditations just on my own, but I really enjoy being guided on a journey because it kind of helps give my thoughts a focus point because we tend to think meditation is about, you know, clearing our head and not having any thoughts when really I view meditation more as a practice of not attaching to those thoughts. So thinking about it as If I'm at a cafe and I'm sitting outside, my thoughts are the passersby, right? The people walking by the cafe, I choose whether I invite them to sit down at my table with me Hmm. or I can just let them keep passing. So I think that's for me, the real value of meditation is not necessarily about clearing our mind and we're just blank and Zen and we achieve nirvana through meditation, but it's really a practice in letting the thoughts pass without attaching to them. What's the difference between guided meditation and affirmation? So an affirmation tends to be sort of a a phrase or a mantra that you can repeat to yourself. Um, You know, I am a kind, loving person is a type of affirmation, whereas a guided meditation is more of a journey, right? So I might walk you through. So one I did last week for a mastermind group I'm part of, I called it a vacation meditation. And I took people to the beach, you know, so we, there's sort of some uh, standard practices that I use to introduce or to close a meditation, but then the middle part of it can be anything. I might take people to the beach. I might take people uh, within themselves. I might take people to a memory of theirs. 
And so it's really about guiding them through an experience that hopefully uh, opens something up for them. They might have a, an epiphany or a realization, or they might just finally feel that they can relax and take a deep breath for the first time that day. Very interesting, because I've, I've never heard the term guided meditation. I've always heard assisted uh, meditation. So that's why I kind of ask. It's kind of borders uh, affirmation, but I, I think it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thinking about a guide or assisted meditation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The common thread I find with, with great leaders and, um, fascinating people and high achieving people are just that meditation and journaling. I see that common thread with, with most that I talk to. You know, I think it's really interesting. I would say yes. And <laughs> no mm. surprise there. Um, I think it's really about the intention behind the practice. So I think if, if someone just said, okay, well, great leaders or someone I aspire to be more like they meditate and they journal. If I start doing it as a checkbox, okay, mm. I'm meditating. Uh, okay, when do I get my promotion? When do I, you know, when do mm. the, when do opportunities open up for me because I'm checking this box? I don't think that's, I think that's a superficial or a shallow way to approach the practice. Whereas I think mm. it's, <clears throat> it's more about realizing that people who are willing to go more deeply within themselves, this is my bias coming out, uh, people who are willing to go more deeply within themselves, people who are willing to pause and say, okay, I need to check out of the rat race or the hamster wheel or being busy, this busyness culture. I need to pause and I need to take time for myself. For some people that may be journaling, for other people that may just be a walk in nature, right? So I think it's really, it's less about the practice itself and more about the intention mm -hmm. and the commitment to honoring and nurturing yourself. Yeah, all too often we get these kind of to-do lists that we kind of just check off, but that's not the goal of meditation and journaling. It's got to be something that hits deep. I think so. I think if it's going to be really effective, right? I think mm. anybody could benefit from, you know, sitting down for five minutes and meditating. I think it's going to have some sort of positive impact, even if you don't necessarily have the intention of going deeper. But I think in order to really maximize the benefits we get from it, we need to be willing to go deeper and have that courage and curiosity. Outstanding, Chris. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Chris at Carbon. I've been following you. I've been excited to talk to you. And uh, you don't disappoint. Your energy is just, it's, 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 a, it's, real, it's radiant. It's, it's wonderful. How can everybody listening get in touch with you? How can we get, uh, get in touch with you, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the hardest part is spelling my name correctly. <laughs> uh, I think that's something that uh, tends to trip people up. It's not Clarissa. There's no L. There's one R. There's two S's. But uh, my website, very easy to find, carissacarbon.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active on social media, LinkedIn and Instagram, at Carissa Carbon. Very easy again. I have a monthly newsletter that you can sign up for. Um, and if you want to email me, it's just carissa at carissacarbon.com. I'm not trying to make it hard for you to find me. <laughs> yes. C-A-R-I-S-S-A -S 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 and Carbon is K-A-R-B-A-N. You yeah, got absolutely. it. Absolutely. And you got you got a lot of great content. Your your Instagram is fantastic as well. You give lots of great bites, even your Twitter. You do a really good job with social media. Carissa, thank you so much for your time today. Uh I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully one day maybe uh, we'll all get together and have a cup of coffee together face-to-face -to -face out there in Denver. 
I would love nothing more. I, I, I live for in-person get-togethers, but thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation and thank you so much. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. You have a great day. Be well. Bye now. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Podcast information, the video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider five, ten, or twenty dollars a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. There's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? Twenty-five dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pin's Discipline Conversations.